Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about Music Masters Collective, a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. These events give you the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, North Mississippi All-Stars, Brother and Sister, Trouble No More, and many more. This July, O'Teal Burbridge will host the 11th annual Roots Rock Revival alongside an incredible group of musicians for a five-day all-inclusive event unlike any other. This once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, masterclasses, song circles, collaborative jams, and so much more. Roots Rock Revival blends the experience of a festival with behind-the-scenes performances and invaluable education from music legends. You won't want to miss it. Packages range from tent camping to luxury cottages to everything in between, and scholarships are also available. Spots are extremely limited, so visit rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault to learn more. That's rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Steve from 36 from the Vault, and I want to tell you about Section 119, which sells some of the coolest and highest quality Grateful Dead clothes you'll ever wear. They've got board shorts, polos, button-downs, blazers, wallets, socks, and even golf gear, with a range of cool designs to show off your fandom and style. Mickey Hart wears their socks, and Bob Weir will be sporting a Section 119 suit as soon as they're able to get back on stage. Since the start of the pandemic, Section 119 has been selling donut face masks and dad bandanas to help fans stay safe. And for every order placed, Section 119 donates a mask to essential workers. What you want to do is go to section119.com, that's section119.com, and enter in the code 36FROMTHEVAULT upon checkout, and you'll get 20% off your first purchase. So if you're looking for some cool jam band gear, go to that website now. Again, that's section119.com. Hey folks, just like Bobby hates rain, I hate my lawn. I've got patchy grass, tons of weeds, and I hate spending precious free time taking care of it. So I'm very interested in Sinlon. Sinlon is the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass in North America. They make safe, clean, environmentally friendly turf. No watering, no pesticides, no mowing. Their artificial grass is made from bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. And it's made right here in the USA. Sinlon sent us a couple samples, which is a funny thing to get in the mail. But it looks and feels crazy realistic and the kids love jumping on it. I can see how it'd work great for a lawn, a playground, a patio, or anywhere else you might need some low-maintenance greenery. For instance, right now, Sinlon is running a contest to win their Dave Pell's Greenmaker Putting Green System, so you can enjoy pro-quality putting in your home or office. Go to Sinlon, S-Y-N-L-A-W-N, dot com, slash, 36, F-T-V, 
Check out their products and enter the contest by August 31st. That's sinlon.com slash 36FTV. So, um, I was thinking about Europe 72 uh, when I was listening to the Dick's Picks record that we're going to be talking about in this episode. Because obviously it's from the same year, and also, you know, Europe 72 is always the record that I recommend to people that have never listened to The Grateful Dead as an introduction to the band. And it's the record that I would probably say is like my favorite of their officially released records from the time that they were a band, you know, not counting the the archival releases after Jerry died. Um, but I realized, like, listening to this Dick's Picks in particular, that, like, as much as I revere Europe 72, I don't think I ever want to listen to it again. <laughs> like, it <laughs> seems like it would be boring to listen to. Right. And um, I'm just wondering, like, if this show, you know, digging into Dick's Picks, and obviously we're also digging into, like, other shows from... the around the time of the albums that we're discussing. Do you feel like it's pushed you away from caring about, like, the official albums or, like, studio albums or, you know, the, even, like, the live records that they put out, uh, you know, like, in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, I think... I, I wouldn't say it pushed me away because I don't think I ever prioritized those. I think I came in to the dead at a point where it was already possible to get tapes pretty easy. And so the studio albums were always an afterthought to me from the very beginning so they're to me they're almost more like signposts along the way that you know you listen to to hear you know sort of snapshots of where the dead were uh at a particular era or time uh i always like the live albums better europe 72 probably my most listened to grateful dead official release album uh but yeah i agree i i I do kind of like that europe 72 has this artifice about it because, you know, they famously did a lot of overdubbing of the vocals and sped up songs and, you know, did all sorts of other little tweaks that made it less than a pure live record. But it just has such a great collection of material that I think I go back to it. And it also is like a good, uh, it's a great, you know, vinyl record to have to listen to on right. a record player uh, with yeah. the triple disc and everything. So, like, for that sort of purpose, I like it. But, yeah, I mean, I would... Between Dick's picks and just Dave's picks and having the entire archive at my fingertips, you know, the the albums are just, you know, another version and usually an inferior version of the things I want to hear. So they they get a very small percentage of my dead listening time anyway. I was thinking about this, too, in relation to Working Man's Dead, which is you know, we're all celebrating the 50th anniversary of that record this year. And there was uh, all those outtakes that were released from the record and. I know when I was on Twitter, I saw a lot of people talking about how this version of New New Speedway Boogie is amazing, and people were getting really excited about it, which is awesome. I'm glad people were digging it, but like I I realized that like for me with the Dead, it's not like how I get about like the Beatles or Bob Dylan when they put out their deluxe editions and they have all these outtakes. Like I tend to care a lot more about the minutia about how their albums were made. And I just found that, like, with Working Man's Dead, as much as I love that record, I don't have that same feeling about their studio work. Like, to me, like, the mystery of, like, how they put their records together, it's not as interesting as, like, 
thinking about the Beatles in the studio or Bob Dylan or Neil Young or any of those other classic rock people. Right. Uh, did you have a similar feeling? I mean, did yeah. you get into that? Well, I mean, so the Dead were much less of a were using the studio as an instrument band. Uh, they they did like especially on the those early records, which they famously took like six months to record, and you know used up all their advance money and didn't make any money after it went actually went on sale. But you know that the official Grateful Dead podcast uh, small plug for them since it's you know hosted by friend of the show Jesse Jarno. Yes, uh, they talk about how that album, uh, you know, was the the whole purpose. The whole like intent of that recording session was that they would have everything totally road tested and they can go in and get it done as quickly and cheaply as possible. So it's an especially funny album to have like 12 takes of a song because basically it's just them screwing up for 11 takes and then one that they got it right. So it's not like a Dylan outtakes box set where he is like building the song piece by piece in the studio. Like The Dead, they just wanted to show up and get like a good version down and leave. Uh, you know, there's a couple albums after Working Man's Dead where they were, you know, playing around at the studio. But for the most part, from Working Man's Dead on, they were very much about, like, let's just get a good solid version in the studio of what we've been doing live and, you know, move on. I mean, it seems like the big appeal of the Working Man's Dead outtakes was like hearing the between song patter, like hear Jerry Garcia blow his nose after like <laughs> yeah. wrecking a guitar solo or something. It's like, oh, it's like pretty cool to hear Jerry doing that. I got to I want to ask you too like how do you feel about the Grateful Dead having an official podcast? <laughs> I mean, are, are they our rival now? Like do we have well, to worry about the Dead getting in on the Grateful Dead podcast game? It's uh, like yeah. We didn't invent like, the Grateful Dead podcast, but yeah. Well, we did. No one had a Grateful Dead podcast. <laughs> Nobody's ever talked about the Dead on, on a podcast. I'm just uh, saying, like, the Grateful Dead, they get to be the band and the podcasters. <laughs> it's like, doesn't seem fair. Like, it's you're a monopoly. already the Grateful Dead. Yeah. No, I mean, I saw some people trying to make a rivalry out of it, but I think they are very much complementary flavors. Uh, if you wanted, of course. If you want to find out uh, which Eastern European folk song inspired Uncle John's band, then... You know, Jesse's got you covered on the right. the good old Grateful Dead podcast. Uh, if you want to hear two guys flying off the cuff about, uh, you know, 20 different versions of Uncle John's band, then you can come to 36 from the vault. So I think our, if, our fan base understands the difference and appreciates the difference. Right. Yeah. If you want to hear a good podcast, listen to the Grateful Dead's podcast. If you want to hear like a less good podcast, listen to us talk about the Triple Berry and whine about Tennessee Jed. I mean, that's what you get. From the 36 from the Vault team. <laughs> That's our solemn vow. By the way, this is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris. That's right, and, the, uh, uh, the good old unofficial Grateful Dead podcast. Yes, the unofficial Grateful Dead podcast. We're going to be talking about Dick's Picks 11 today. September 27th, 1972, from the Stanley Theater yeah. in New Jersey. Jersey City, New Jersey. Shout out to WFMU. Yes. It was and, the, that's uh, uh, home away from home in 1972. We'll get into it. And uh, WFMU, were they going in 72? They probably been, were, right? Yeah, they've been around forever. So uh, I'm going to tip my hand at the beginning of this episode and say that this is among my favorite Dick's picks that we've done so far. And I'm going to hedge my words a little bit because I feel like I'm going to probably say something like that before our next episode and maybe before our next couple episodes. 
this season, like, there aren't really any duds. You know, like, I feel like we're talking about heaters almost every episode. Yeah. And I worry a little bit that one of two things is going to happen. Either people are going to get bored because we just say (laughs) effusively positive things about every show, or we're going to get... Uh, you know, sort of numb to the brilliance by the end of the season, yeah. and we just won't be able to like get it up about like a killer China writer or Morning Dew, you know, <laughs> by the end of the season because it's like there. This show I think is really really strong. The next bunch are very very strong. Uh, it's really impressive, I think. Yeah, I've got my eye on that 1981 show, though. I think it's going to be a nice uh, variety. Dick's picks 13. Dick's Picks 13, the only Brent appearance exactly. in this after, season. After spending some time in the 70s, I think it'll be nice to get a little uh, change of pace in there. But Well, we have an early 90s show coming up, too. I think that is 17. Yeah, 91. It's early 90s. Yeah. Uh, so we're going back to the uh, the double keyboards uh, era right there. No, I agree. Uh, I feel like uh, this is definitely where Dick has you know got the clout to put out whatever he wants. So we're getting... You know, the fire hose of pure, unfiltered Dick's Picks, especially during this run that is just, you know, mostly early 70s. I feel like it's really, you know, he's he's coming out guns a-blazing with some, yeah, it, some of the really good dead shit. Yeah, and just to circle back to my point about, you know, Europe 72, obviously this record, uh, the Dick's Picks uh, 11, has a lot of songs from that record. But uh, the performances here, man, maybe I shouldn't be too effusive yet. I feel like I just want to <laughs> rave about this show already. I want to talk about the brilliance of Bill, too. I feel like I'm going to be hitting the Bill drum a lot in this episode, just <laughs> no to warn people. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> hitting the Bill drums drum uh, in this episode because, man, Bill, I worshipping Bill on this record worshiping a lot of things yeah uh but uh, yeah but i, I, I mean, it's interesting that you like this one so much because i think one side effect of going through this series like this is that the you know you get these really great dicks picks volumes that represent particular eras of the dead uh but i think the more you listen to them i think what really jumps out at you are sort of the transition volumes and we talked about this a little bit with Volume 4, which has always been my favorite Dick's Picks. And part of what I like about it is that you can hear like three different eras of the dead kind of all mixing up and clashing in one you know, collection, one set of two shows. Uh, and this is another one where it's, it's kind of marking a point between two very famous and well-regarded uh, eras of the Grateful Dead. Uh, but it, it isn't really entirely of one of those eras, but it's very much like the evolutionary transition point between those two eras. And if you are listening to a lot of Dead, I think it's a, you get a lot out of hearing those particular shows uh, where you can kind of hear one thing coming to a close and another thing just, you know, drawing uh, into maturity at the same time. It's like a really uh, a thrilling listen for that. It's fascinating, too, because... For the Dick's Pick series in particular, September of 1972 is a very momentous month because mm-hmm. there are three Dick's Picks records called from like a 10-day span. You know, you've got Dick's Picks 11, September 27th. You have Dick's Picks 36, which is September 21st, six days earlier. And then you have 
Dick's Picks 23, which is September 17th. And yeah. it's funny because like I was reading about this era, and you read a lot of books about the dead. I, I feel like September 72 isn't necessarily written about a lot because, as you were saying, you've got these other eras that are right around this time. You've got, obviously, the Europe tour from the summer, or I guess it would be late spring, mm-hmm. and then you have 73 right around the corner. But, uh, man, there's a lot of gold. Yeah. At this time. And, yeah. Uh, it's no uh, May 77 in terms of being overhyped and over-released. No. But, yeah, it, that's that's crazy that there's three shows within, like, a 10-day span <laughs> that had made it to this one series. And so, and it's you know, clearly baby. it was a dick, uh, it was a dick favorite. So, we'll talk a little bit about why we think that is, I think. Yes, let's dig out the gold. So yeah, so this uh, this one came out in June 1998. Uh, unlike the last couple episodes, or I guess just unlike the last volume, uh, this one is back to the format of just one show. No filler, nothing fancy, no compilations. It's just one show that actually like fits very well on a three-disc set. That might have been why this one got the nod versus some of the other ones in the run because it just falls very nicely across three discs. Uh, This one is Owsley and Bob Matthews at the recording board, it sounds like. Uh, So it fits with the uh, Working Man's Dead chat uh, since we got Bob Matthews on the boards. And uh, yeah, the one like sort of weird behind-the-scenes thing on this show is uh, eagle-eyed listeners may recognize that there is a soundboard patch in this show and i think people that spend a lot of time in the archive are used to patches uh you know sort of dropping suddenly from a soundboard quality to an audience quality and back but uh, this is one that the the dead made where they actually patched it from another show which is maybe a little bit less uh all right ethical seems like too strong a word but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a bit of a uh, you know, maybe it's uh, against the rules slightly to draw something in from. It looks it was three days. We got to call the. So it, it's in. I call the archive cops. We got to call the archive <laughs> exactly. cops. Make it a rest. Throw Bob Matthews and Owsley in prison for this. Yeah, there's there's right. that section in the middle. I guess you know it's from like the one minute fifty five second mark to the two minute twenty second mark. Take it from the I know you writer from September twenty fourth. So three days earlier. Right. And you pointed this out to me, and I kind of wish you didn't, because <laughs> I had no idea when I listened to it that there was, you know, a slightly different track in that part of the song. But now that I know that it's there, it is somewhat audible, right? I mean, it's like a little bit of a tempo change. Maybe it sounds like yeah. a little bit slower in that part. 
It does. It sounds like the tape kind of slows down for 30 seconds and then picks back up. Uh, and I think the only other tell is that Billy is doing something a little bit different on the drums. Uh, and so you can kind of hear where it switches. But for one, they did a great job of patching it in. Like it's, you know, some great technical wizardry that is way beyond my knowledge of how you do this sort of thing in the studio. Uh, but two, it's, I think it's actually kind of impressive that the dead were this like consistent <laughs> at the time, a famously inconsistent band from night to night uh, that you could actually pull, you know, 30 seconds from another, uh, and another performance entirely and drop it in. It helps that it's during a verse, like it comes during a verse of, I know you writer. So that, you know the verses you would think are going to be a little more similar from show to show but it goes against a little bit of my my impression of the dead as being just you know the worst possible studio band that could never do the same take you know twice in a row the same way uh but it turns out they were actually somewhat consistent at, at this point in time the sun will shine Well, and this will be one of my many Bill compliments in this episode. I think this would have been impossible with two drummer dead. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. I think having <laughs> Billy back there and Billy just being on fire at this time, being so rock steady, so swinging, so tight, uh, made that kind of edit possible. Uh, if you would have had Mickey up there putting on some of his extra sauce, I, I, I think it would have been much more difficult. I mean... It would have gone from uh, cowbell to talking drum. Or... <laughs> right. I mean... <laughs> In the middle of the song, yeah. I mean, I think you and I are coming from a similar point here where there's a purist in us that maybe wishes, I just leave the tape as it is. I, don't, I mean, my guess is that maybe that part of the tape was inaudible. It was unusable, and that's why they yeah. had to fix it. Uh, but like I said, I didn't know that they had done that when I listened to it. You know, until you told me that. So hopefully we've ruined it for you too by pointing it out to you <laughs> that they've done this. Uh, so that's our job. That's our job here on Thirty Six from the Vault. Yeah. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about the venue. Like this this is the Stanley Theater again in Jersey right. City, New Jersey, and we should clarify here that there's a couple different Stanley theaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was confused about this too until I did a little poking around. But there's also a Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh that they actually played more. They played there six times, and they played this one uh, only three times. And it was all in this uh, this run of three shows in 1972. Uh, I also think it sometimes gets mixed up with the Capitol Theater, uh, which is a much more famous dead venue, but they were both sort of like commuter town, 
New York City area theaters that they played a lot in the early 70s. Uh, but yeah, the Stanley Theater was its own thing in Jersey City. Uh, it opened in 1928, held about 4,000 people. Uh, it was used primarily for movies, but they also did you know, stage shows, vaudeville, uh, all the things that you did sort of in the 20s and 30s and 40s in America. So, you know, we had early on, we would list, you know, like things like the Hollywood Sportatorium and all the other rock bands that came through there. This one has one of the weirder list of performers that played at the Stanley Theater. We have the Three Stooges, uh, <laughs> Jimmy Durante, Tony Bennett, who like probably played there 80 years ago, but he's still alive. Uh, Janis Joplin played there, of course. She'll come up again today. Uh, and uh, Dolly Parton played there. So it, it seems like it was kind of a, you know, your classic old America uh, one-size-fits-all theater for, for movies, for comedy shows, for bands, for big bands, for country bands, for any, any like, sort of touring production that would come through. Um, but ne- it's still around, and it's kind of in- interesting recent history. It got bought by the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, and totally renovated. There's, if you look at do a little Google search on the Stanley Theater and you'll get to it. But there's a, a really nice article showing uh, pictures inside of it uh, and how they restored it. And other than some slightly creepy Jehovah's Witness things that they added to it, it's it's it's, it's a very nice looking old theater. Uh, at the time that the dead were playing there, it sounds like it was uh, like total trash. Uh, it was described as a grindhouse uh, in the liner notes and a couple other places, uh, which actually I think kind of suits the dead. I don't know how you feel about like what is the appropriate venue for the dead, but I, I feel like 20s movie house that is decaying rapidly is exactly where you would want to see the dead in 1972. Yeah, I mean, this is why we like talking about the venues on this podcast, because it is a way to explore this underbelly of America, all these music venues, theaters that uh, have these long histories. I can't get over the Three Stooges playing there. I didn't really, (laughs) I, I guess I knew that they were from vaudeville, but just imagining seeing the Stooges live. The original Stooges, not the Iggy Pop Stooges, <laughs> yeah, would have been incredible. Like that, you know, like you're talking about like Janis Joplin and Dolly Parton, all these great performers playing there. But like the Three Stooges were like the one I was the most excited to hear about. They, they would have been amazing uh, to see live. Um, did you dip into the rest of this run at all? Like the because they played on the 26th and they played on the 28th. Yeah, I jumped around and, a little bit on those shows. Like we, yeah, I did too. Do. And, uh, and it it sounds like the 28th, the tape was a mess. Yeah. At least what they have, you know, on the archive now. And it was, you know, if, if the Charlie Miller version is a mess, then the the tape in the vault is probably a mess because he seems to somehow always find the best quality recording to do his transfer off of. So that's one reason why this show probably got picked. But yeah, what do you think about the other shows? Was yeah, I mean, I, I, I tried to listen to some of 28 but yeah it doesn't sound that great so it's hard to judge that in terms of the performance all that easily but yeah the 26th i i I dipped into and it's a really strong show i mean i think the dead were playing pretty strong gigs every night around this time as evidenced again by all the dicks picks records that have come out of uh this month um but unlike a lot of our episodes i feel like there's no really disputing that the right show got picked. I mean, mm-hmm. I think 27th was was clearly the jewel of of this run. I will say, like the 26th is definitely worth listening to. There's a pretty cool 
Truckin', Other One Jam, that um, I think lasts about 39 minutes or so. That's, that takes the spot that like the Dark Star has in this show. Yeah. And uh, it reminded me, you know, doing a Dick's Picks callback to uh, the first volume. There's a Truckin' Other One Jam in there as well. And I think that was a pretty common uh, thing for them to do in the early 70s. Uh, you know, like if they were going to do a Dark Star one night, maybe they're going to do like an other one type jam the next night mm-hmm. and often packaging it with trucking. I also really liked they did It's All Over Now, Baby Blue yeah. uh, then, which is one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. It's one of my favorite covers that the dead do. Um, that's a song I always associate more with like 80s and 90s uh, Grateful Dead, although right. they did start playing that in 66. Yeah, um, I think it's their oldest still in cover. Yeah, I mean, it's all still in cover, but I don't think they played it quite as much like in the late sixties and early seventies as they mm-hmm. subsequently did later on. So it was cool to hear a younger dead play that song. Yeah. Um so I'd recommend that. But yeah, like I said, I think Dick made the right call. This is the best show, I think, hands down mm-hmm. from the run. Uh so there'll be no chiding Dick from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> no second guessing Dick. Yeah. The ghost of Dick coming to haunt us. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 this run is particularly interesting to me, like jumping, looking at the set lists and jumping around because the the fall of 72 seemed like a time when the dead really started focusing on playing these multi-night runs at theaters. Uh, and so this is a good, those, those these three nights are a pretty good example of how they approach that. And they just had this explosion of material at this time, right? Because we yeah. talked about how this is the Europe 72 year, but it, it's also the year that Garcia came out. It's the year that Ace came out. Uh, they had, you know, all the material that they had put on the Skull and Roses album just the year before. Uh, so they were finally moving into this space where they could mix up the set list pretty significantly from night to night. And they do that a little bit. There's still some songs that they'll just play every night. Like they play playing in the band all three nights of this run. Uh, but they they definitely alternate what like the spotlight featured jam of the night is uh, o- over the course of the three nights. Like you said, like there's a big truck in the first night. There's a big dark star on this night that we'll talk about. And then there's a big other one on its own on the third night. So they were really thinking, starting to think about, you know, these uh, multi-night stands where they probably knew that they were it was about, you know, mostly the same audience each night. And starting to think about how they could mix it up each night and give people a different experience and, uh, you know, just uh, create this, you know, thing we all we take for granted now with the Grateful Dead and with all the jam bands in their wake of mixing up the set list rather than just relying on sort of a core repertoire or playing the hits. Yeah, I mean, the the explosion of their repertoire to me is such a huge deal of you know, that 70 to 74 period. Um, and it's why, I mean, it's my favorite period. And I think it's the favorite period for a lot of people, um, that you have this just incredible combination of the material being there. You know, they finally have this undeniable collection of songs. And then in 72, you have the situation where they're playing at a really high level. You know, they come off of this, tour of Europe that ends up being historic for them. It spawns the Europe 72 record. You have Keith and Donna coming into the band and really becoming, you know, Keith becoming the keyboard player because Pigpen sadly is fading. 
He played his last show with the dead in June of 72, and he ended up passing away in early 73. But the sadness of that, at least artistically for the dead, is mitigated by what Keith does to the dead musically, you know, where they clearly go to a different level. And you hear them really starting to come into their own at this time in the fall of 72. And I think for you and I, like we love 73, 74 dead. Mm-hmm. And we were, it's funny cause we were, we were texting each other uh, last week, getting ready. You know, we were listening to the record on our own and we kind of came to the same conclusion uh, on our own with this show that we felt like in a way, this was like setting up what they were going to become in 73, 74. You, you hear the traces of like the jazzier, mellower band. Uh, that they're going to become. Yet at the same time, there is um, a real rock and roll kick-ass energy to this show. Right. Uh, that, to me, it, it's like the perfect combination of, of salty and sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, like, th- I wrote th- the word stonesy in our, <laughs> in our outline over and over again, referring to the Rolling Stones, because they, there are lots of songs on this record that remind me of, like, the Stones, like on their 72 tour. Yeah. Like, like they toured America, I think it was in June of uh, 72. And uh, a lot of that owing to Bill really coming into his own at this sure. time, being this incredibly jazzy drummer, but also having like a little bit of a Charlie Watts to him as well. Like a, yeah. a, an incredible swinging rock and roll guitar player who can also do incredible things in the midst of like a bird song or playing in the band. Like, an all-purpose drummer, like the, the the dream of a timekeeper that you would want in a band like this. Um, and all that coming together. Another thing, too, I think we should mention is that the famous Vanita show is right. exactly one month before this show. Yeah. And I feel like you can hear traces of that very, you know, very beloved and, high, you know, a show very, you know, held in very high esteem, especially like on the Dark Star and the, and the Bird Song which I, I really associate those songs like with that show. But you can hear like what they were doing at Benita, I think, on these fall shows as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I always, you know, Vanetta is such a, I don't know if it's Vanetta or Vanita. Somebody will correct us for sure yes, online I, afterwards. <laughs> I guarantee you that I mispronounced it. There's yeah, no, yeah. I would not trust my pronunciation on it. Just anything. like I learned today that it's Murrin County, not Marin County. But uh, we're I blame my Midwestern... Chicago accent for that one. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're two <laughs> we're two Midwestern hicks. You know, like we don't exactly. We're, we're going to screw up the California uh, <laughs> counties. Yeah. Apologies in advance to everybody. But uh, Vanetta, you know, it's such a classic tape. I think it's like second only to Cornell in terms of being an iconic Grateful Dead tape. And it always, to me, just felt like a an island right like it's such a weird circumstances of the show are weird the sets are kind of weird they're these really short sets because the weather was so awful that day uh and so it didn't really link into grateful dead history very well for me uh but hearing this show and thinking about like where they were post europe in 1972 and how uh the Europe sound bled into the 73 and 74 sound. Uh, it makes a lot more sense because I think to me, you say the stones for 72. I always think of credence. I feel like this Europe 72 dead were like the dead at their chugliest. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the very specific adjective I associate with Europe 72. Whereas 73, 74 is getting into like pure 
like the jazziest that the Grateful Dead ever got. And I think that's what I was talking about with this transition period where these fall 72 shows seem to have both the dead at their most chugal, uh, but also these little sparks of the dead uh, moving into this really jazzy, almost fusion-y space that we've talked about in previous volumes. Uh, and I love that. Like I love hearing a band that isn't content to rest on their laurels, uh, you know, very good laurels, like the Europe 72 dead. Man, that's a band that is really doing what they do super well, uh, but they're still innovating and pushing forward. And I really think you, you cite Bill, and I, I love Bill on this volume as well. Uh, but what is really exciting to me about this volume is hearing Keith step up We've talked about how Keith was not a very proactive player in the dead for most of his time, but I think this is really the period where Keith had the confidence to nudge Grateful Dead improvisation into jazzier territory. Uh, and I think you see it a couple times in the show really well. And probably, you know, I haven't explored the fall as thoroughly as we will have done by the end of this series, but I have a yeah, feeling I'm- that's something that he is doing a lot of at this time. Yeah, I'm with you 100% on Keith in this show. He sounds incredible. And one of the things I'll say about Dick's Picks 11, and I'm going to probably say this a lot, you know, as we get into the show, but you know, there's so many great peaks of 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 this uh record, but what really blows me away is the songs that I thought I was sick of hearing sound really good on yeah. this record. And there are a bunch of songs that we've made jokes about. You know, being sick of in other episodes. And when I heard him on this record, I was like, this is about as well as this song can be played. And it actually makes me excited to hear it again. Uh, And uh, I don't know how much you agree with that. I feel like we're kind of on the same page with that, but maybe you disagree with with some of my feelings on, on those Songs that I think we look at as afterthoughts a lot of the time, but on this record, they don't feel like afterthoughts. Yeah. You feel like they're actually connecting with those songs as much as they are the big jam set pieces. So it's going to be fun to talk about those uh, when we get to the show. And we are almost there, but of course, we have to set the scene in terms of the larger pop culture first. As the co host of a jam band podcast, I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm still pretty new to the world of CBD. But Sunset Lake CBD is a great way to give it a test run. Sunset Lake is a family-owned farm in Vermont that started as a dairy supplier for Ben & Jerry's. A couple years ago, they got into growing hemp for CBD, and they've got a whole bunch of products available in their online shop at sunsetlakecbd.com. Seriously, I had no idea there were so many different ways to use CBD. Sunset Lake has tincture and salve, gummies, CBD coffee, even flour, keef, and pre-rolls if smoking is more your thing. Their hemp is 100% pesticide-free and organic, and everything is lab-tested so you know exactly what you're ingesting. In July, they're donating 4.2% of their online sales to the Drug Policy Alliance, a pretty good cause. So far, I've tried the gummies and found them very mellow after long bike rides. I also gave some of their pet tincture to my sister-in-law for her super high-strung dogs, who seem to enjoy it as well. If you too want to sample some Sunset Lake CBD products, we've got a promo code, VAULT15, that will give you 15% off anything in their store. Again, that's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code VAULT15. 
So let's talk about the number one song in America the week of this show. It's in late September of 1972. Now, this is a song I I don't think I'd ever heard. Until, me either. Yeah. Until this is totally new this to me. Episode. It's uh, Don't Get Hooked on Me by Mac Davis. And uh, I'm familiar with Mac Davis. Mac Davis was a was a songwriter. Uh, he wrote In the Ghetto for Elvis Presley. He wrote A Little right. Less Conversation. Uh, that's how he got his start. And then he became this like pop country star uh, in the 70s. Um, and this was one of his biggest hits, Don't Get Hooked on Me. Um, I knew him more as an actor. Like, Have you ever seen the movie North Dallas 40 like with Nick Nolte? No, I haven't. Is it? It's, is it a football movie, or is it something else? Yeah, it's a football movie. Uh, yeah, came out in nineteen seventy nine, and uh, like Mac Davis plays the quarterback, and Nolte is like this like pill popping wide receiver, and <laughs> stretch. Okay, yeah. and like <laughs> I interviewed Stephen Malkmus uh, <laughs> earlier this year, and he brought up North Dallas forty in our interview randomly. Wow. Okay. Uh, I don't know how it came up. I'd have to look at the transcript again. But anyway, <laughs> I like North Dallas 40, and Stephen Malkmus also likes North Dallas 40. So so check it out. Um, other big songs from this time, Saturday in the Park by Chicago, Backstabbers by the OJs, Michael Jackson's Ben <laughs> from the movie Ben, right? Uh, song to a Rat. Um, yeah. Have you seen cool. Ben? I actually I, have seen Ben. That's a, not, it's a wild movie. <laughs> no, I only know that song. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Um, the Raspberries Go All the Way, one of the great power pop songs of all time. Yeah, that song, it's like, uh, it's Big Star, basically, right? Oh, yeah. Before Big Star, yeah. Yeah, Raspberries were like Big Star if they had had hits. Yeah. Um, lots of good songs. And, of course, the lead singer, <laughs> Eric Carmen. Later had a hit with Hungry oh. Eyes from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Wow, I never knew that connection. Yeah. Wow. All right. And I feel like a bad music critic, but hopefully <laughs> our listeners are equally uh, newly informed by that tidbit. Wow. I feel like it's my job in our relationship to show up the <laughs> Dirty Dancing soundtrack knowledge. <laughs> so you don't need to know that. I, I can bring that to the table. Um, Chuck Berry, My Ding-A-Ling, his, his, his comeback. Uh Bobby never wanted to sing my ding-a-ling I, I, I know, I'm, I'm shocked <laughs> They could have worked that in a couple times Yeah, I don't know I, you know, Maybe that's why they were playing so much Barry at this time Because Barry was, <laughs> was in the air People That's were like, true, I had no idea that he was like having this late career resurgence He even had his own like Europe 72 album I yeah. learned at this time The uh, the London Chuck Berry Sessions Which is like a half studio, half live uh, uh, set that was uh, on the album chart at the same time, but yeah, this, my dingling was ended up being like his biggest chart hit or something, right? I think it. Yeah. Had a we- It's a weird trivia answer, but I know it's yeah, kind of uh, sad. Like all these creepy songs, songs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And ri- written by the guy or played by the guy who later was didn't he go to jail for videotaping women in the bathroom at his think, amusement park? Yeah, at his amusement park. I didn't know that. Part didn't he have it, an amusement yeah. park? <laughs> I think <laughs> Make, he had his own probably. amusement park. Sure. Um, it was called Triple Berry Amusement Park. <laughs> the Triple Berry was the roller coaster. But, uh... <laughs> um, the number one album in America was Chicago Five. Have you yeah. uh, have you dug into Chicago at all? <laughs> uh, no, but uh, you know, by happenstance, um, 
I happened upon a Chicago live video uh, today uh, from 1970. So a little bit before. Is that at Chicago, uh, Chicago uh, five? Yeah, it was at Tanglewood. Tanglewood. Yeah. Yeah. That's a famous yeah. video. And it, it kind of ripped. Like I was, I was shocked. I have the first Chicago album, the Chicago Transit Authority album, but yeah, I I have to admit I have not dug into the Chicago catalog. And someday I'm going to listen to the uh, the Welcome to Chicago podcast uh, that our our new Osiris colleagues uh, have been doing for quite a while, where they go through every Chicago album. Look one at you! One. You're just because dropping I'm, you're dropping plugs for all these podcasts. Man. Hey, you're, you know, you are. I, 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 I feel I I almost feel bad that I haven't I'm I'm admitting that I haven't listened to it even though I love those dudes. Oh, man. Uh but I appreciate a good deep dive into a long album series. Uh, yeah. Go figure. Uh and so but it, I've always been a little bit intimidated by the thought of having to listen to multiple episodes about the band Chicago even they're, as a lifelong Chicago band. They yeah. are. I, I think they are. Yeah. So maybe I should give it a shot. And... I mean, like early Chicago had Terry Kath, who was like this, you know, guitar wizard that Jimi Hendrix loved. Yeah. And, he, and, and then he ended up shooting himself in the head accidentally. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Crazy rock death. And, right. And uh, Peter Cetera was like not really the front man at all until later on. Yeah. And... Like in the early 80s, like he lost a bunch of weight and then yeah. started styling his hair. And then, right. uh, writing songs about the Karate Kid Part 2, and yeah. it was just, you know, <laughs> the man. Yeah, like, yeah. Chicago 5 was also the first Chicago album to not be at least a double album. <laughs> I know, I love which that. Which is insane. And then, like, they their, want... <laughs> their live record, Live at Carnegie Hall, which I own, is, like, a quadruple record. <laughs> of a, course. Not even The Dead did a quadruple record. At <laughs> least, like, they did Dick's Picks, I guess, that were four discs, but... Well, at the time, yeah. I mean, that came out... In the early seventies, right? Yeah, seventy one. Yeah, and like yeah. The, so Europe seventy two seems like excessive at three, three LPs. But man, yeah, yeah, yeah. Four like, LPs of live Chicago before they even had Saturday in the Park. Exactly, and like it's crazy because yeah, they're putting out like double albums like at least once a year too. <laughs> I mean, just yeah. turning out material. Chicago, hardworking middle Americans, just like you yeah. and me. I feel uh, like there's a lot to be said about Chicago as like a. A dark universe version of the Grateful Dead, or maybe the Grateful Dead or the Ooh. dark universe, and they're Ooh. the light. Who has the goatee in this like parallel? I'm not sure, but well, yeah, that's uh, they're, a, yeah, they're an interesting band. You're right. I gotta, I gotta well, learn th- more about Chicago. I'm just thinking this through a little bit. If they were like the dark universe Grateful Dead, it it'd be like if the Dead had Dead and Co. starting in the late '70s, because like Terry <laughs> Kath was like their Garcia. Yeah. And he died, and then Satara becomes like the John Mayer, like yeah. the like the, the the like the good-looking pop guy who takes them in a different direction, and they're they're doing power ballads in the '80s and stuff. This is yeah. a good thing. Maybe we'll do a curveball episode on Chicago. <laughs> well, then we're definitely stuck on the terms <laughs> of our our late era friends. But you know, maybe we should do a well, uh, a collabo episode with all five of us. So our own cool. our own listeners, I think, would revolt if we did that. <laughs> uh, so I don't think we're going to do that. Don't worry, guys. Um, the number one film in America, Deliverance. Uh, great early seventies action film. A little hard to watch. Yeah, because of the intensity of it, and you know, there's there's a very famous sexual assault scene 
uh, on Ned Beatty. Ned Beatty gets assaulted in that uh, by some rednecks. Yeah. Um, very traumatic. Uh, but Burt Reynolds is in that. John Voight. Uh, really great movie. I'm a yeah. huge Liverance fan. Definitely, I think maybe this is no longer true, but overshadowed by the Ned Beatty scene, right? Like, yeah. I, I remember watching it and being like, wow, this is a really good movie, you know, beyond that. But that is, has such a like cultural footprint that it's hard to kind of, you know, to see the movie as its own thing. But yeah, well, yeah, it's it, like Squeal Like a Pig and Dueling Banjos. That's like yeah, the two exactly. things from Deliverance. Um, and I feel like people know those references. They know Dueling Banjos anyway, even mm-hmm. if they've never seen Deliverance. You know, right. It's like one of those things that, you know, you know you're about <laughs> right. to get assaulted by rednecks if, yeah, if, yeah. if you hear that sound. But um, like action star Burt Reynolds is definitely oh, something man. worth revisiting. Oh, uh, man. Especially for people of our age who maybe got to him late. But like, oh, man. yeah, he is a, he's a big hunk of man in that movie. He is. <laughs> 70, 70s Reynolds is like, you know, Gator. Go see Gator and like White Lightning. Obviously, Smokey and the Bandit's Smokey awesome. Smokey and the Bandit, yeah. Um, yeah. Reynolds. Love him. Um, do you think Jerry Garcia liked Burt Reynolds? Do we want to go down, <laughs> do we want to go down that path? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe a little <laughs> masculine for Jerry. I feel like Bob really liked Burt oh, Reynolds, yeah. probably, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think he was like modeling himself after like a man's <laughs> man, like Burt Reynolds. Bob yeah. would totally do the uh, play girl. Uh, photo shoot (laughs) (laughs) yeah did like did burt reynolds ever wear like cut off jean shorts i don't remember that absolutely i'm sure he did uh, he had the legs for it oh yeah if you got to flaunt it whether you're burt reynolds or bob those hairy legs and a a cut off (laughs) jeans that's a good it's a hot early 70s look yeah (laughs) number one tv show in america take a guess it was all in the family yes of course and I was trying to dig in and find any show at all that we haven't discussed already. Maybe the TV show charts need to drop off this segment because they're too repetitive. Well, you, but, the, uh, there's Sanford and Son and yeah, Ho- Hawaii Five O. We have not talked really about Hawaii. Yeah, 5-0. yeah. Hawaii Five O is. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen it, but like that—that's something new. Uh, Mary the in the Mary Tyler Moore show, which um, now I'm going to drop a podcast. You must remember this. The film podcast mm, yeah. talking about Another Polly Platt, yeah. the great oh, Polly okay, Platt. Yeah. Um, James L. Brooks was the uh, creator, I think, of the Mary Tyler Moore show, and he went on to uh, direct Terms of Endearment, Broadcast News. He was the guy who basically brought Matt Groening out of uh, obscurity and, and created The Simpsons, and Polly Platt was involved in all those films, so... Interesting, okay. There we go. A little, little tidbit for you there. James L. Brooks, <laughs> Polly Platt... Mary it's not as good show. as the Eric Carmen was in the Raspberries. That's true, but, but we can all. Connect, it's all downhill from there. The point is that we can we can connect this all to the Grateful Dead. Thank you. 
Hey, this is Chris Santos, host of Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Delirious Nomads is a podcast about all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports. And me being a chef and all, we'll be riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. All right, so we're finally to the show here. <laughs> and uh, September 27th, 1972. Jersey City, New Jersey, Stanley Theater. And I remember, like, when we started digging into this record, I texted you and I was like, What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I could not believe the opening of this show <laughs> because it's like one of the great, you know, it, it's like, uh, you know, like Pulp Fiction or something, like where they start at the end of the movie. You're like, what? <laughs> is this the first scene or the last scene? Because the first song right. is Morning Dew. Which yeah. we're used to talking about as being the show-stopping ballad of the second set. Like that is the spot that Morning Dew was born to inhabit, and yet here we are, Morning Dew at the beginning of the show, and this isn't un- like totally unusual. Actually, they're going to do it again in Dick's Picks fourteen. Right. Spoiler alert there, but. Um, what did you think of this? Well, I yeah, it, I, I looked it up. They actually opened shows with Morning Dew 29 times, and they opened up even more second sets with Morning Dew, so they did use it as an opener quite a bit. Uh, but I believe most of those were pretty early on, and a lot of those second set openers even were like when they were transitioning from acoustic sets to electric sets, they would kick it off with Morning Dew. Um, but yeah, I... I I agree. It's a it's a it's a weird choice as an opener. Uh, I may even land on not liking it, though. I'll I'll say I I always want to hear Morning Dew. Hearing Morning Dew is better than not hearing Morning Dew. Uh, but I like it much more as the emotional climax of a show than just kicking it off straight away with Morning Dew. And I think this version is fine, but I also think that it's not as revelatory as if it was coming from a tired band you know two and a half hours from now that had been all over the map musically and then you get this great you know gentle build up to a really beautiful jerry solo i feel like it's a little bit like it's a little bit tighter in a bad way uh than you would normally get from this song yeah i it's interesting to me because on one hand i do feel like they're throwing this song away in a way for the reasons that you said that there's so much power in this song and it's such a payoff when it comes after you've been on this journey with the band for like two and a half hours. And now we're reaching the conclusion of the show and Jerry's going to hit us with this mind melting solo. That's going to leave everyone in tears. You know, Mm -hmm. that is the role that morning dew plays. And when you put it at the front of the show, no matter how well it's played. And I think this is really well played. And I love the solo that Jerry plays starting at around the eight minute mark. You know, that the, the climactic solo of the song, essentially. Um, 
But yeah, it doesn't have the same impact because it's first in the show. However, I will say that because I think this show is so great, yeah. I admire, one, the perversity of it. Because again, <laughs> as you said, it's not like they never did this. They did it about 30 times or so. But it's still unusual. And even in the liner notes of the Dix Picks, the guy who wrote the liner notes, he makes note of like how weird it was to hear Morning Dew first. You know, like mm-hmm. I think a lot of people in the audience were probably thrown by it. But I kind of yeah. look at it as a flex yeah. from the dead, like, hey, you know what? We don't need this song to kill. Because we're gonna kill anyway. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna like pull out the stop. So we can play Morning Dew first and we can surprise everyone and it's gonna be great. And yeah, it's not gonna have the impact it normally would, but that's okay, because we're on fire and we're going to kill you in a different kind of way. So, um, and it also kind of calls back to this, you know, concept I was talking about previously with the band thinking about runs of set lists instead of just individual shows set lists, where if they knew that people were coming to all three of these shows, they could do something quirky like this and give everybody a little treat. Like, oh, they're playing Morning Dew first instead of later in the set. Like, they trusted their audience at this point to kind of follow along with what somebody coming into the show naively wouldn't really register as anything different. Uh, But the people that were coming to see the dead regularly at this time would say, oh, my God, they opened with Morning Dew. This is so great. Which, you know, we're talking about 1972. Like, rock and roll itself was only a few years removed from, like, review shows where all you did was play the hit. (laughs) <laughs> and then switch to another band. So the fact that they were this willing to toy around with set lists at this point is really cool. It's yeah. something maybe we take for granted given that we have 30 years of dead shows to listen to. Yeah, it's almost like like a meta move by the dead. Like, hey, we know that you expect this to be last, so we're going to play it first. You know, right. We're kind of messing with your expectations here. And I'm going to make uh, a comparison here that like some of our listeners are going to hate. But I know you and I will <laughs> right. like. It, okay. It kind of makes me think of like when Fish starts a show with like tweezer reprise, you know? It's like <laughs> yeah. connecting it to like a previous show, you know? It's like, we're going to start the show with this. It's like, this this isn't going to be like the grand finale. It's going to be, be the beginning as sort of an acknowledgement that we're doing something different with this. And right. Isn't that kind of cool? Like, if you follow the yeah. band, it rewards the people that are paying attention and are looking for novelty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they do kind of play a backward show in some extent because like one of the songs that they would open almost every other show with in 1972 comes very late in this show so i do think that they were consciously turning things around a little bit uh either to keep themselves entertained or to give a little you know treat to their fans so the next song we have is beat it on down the line and this is following a pattern i know you noted in our notes (laughs) that they go to repeatedly where there's a a gorgeous song that is jammy or stately or is going to an emotional place and then they immediately follow it with a party song. Right. A Bobby Rocker. A Bobby Rocker. A Bobby Country. Which yeah. is a standard Grateful Dead formula, as we all know. I mean, they, they do that yes. in a lot of their shows, but they do that time and again in this show from the beginning. Yeah. It, it, it's like an it, like they alternate almost throughout the show like that. Um mm-hmm. And uh, I think you and I maybe feel a little bit differently about that, but we'll get into that more as we progress in the show. My main thing with this song was um, I had to check the liner notes to make sure that Donna was 
on this show and and she is credited with you know being in the band and you know showing up here but it's like you can't really hear donna on a lot of these songs like this is a song that i expected to hear donna on and i don't know if she like wasn't on stage or if they just turned her way down like i'd be curious to know the circumstances of that because on this song and on many songs like i can't hear her at all yeah i think it's just that this is still pretty early in having Donna come out and sing along on some songs. And I don't think they had fully worked her into songs like beat it on down the line. Like they would later on in her tenure with the band. So like the iconic Donna scream is there for playing in the band and she's on uh, greatest story ever told and a couple other places you can hear her. But I think, there's this is just like on Europe 72 you don't hear her except for a couple moments like that so I think it's just a case where they hadn't written parts for Donna yet for some of these songs that later on became known as Bob Donna duets and since Beat It On Down The Line was an older song that the dead had been playing since like their very first shows I think they maybe maybe she wasn't out there uh, for this version and for versions at this in this era the next song we have is Friend of the Devil, and this is a song that we've heard on many Dick's Picks so far, but this, yeah. not this version. This is like the fast electric version. We've heard like yeah. the fast acoustic version, and we've heard the slow <laughs> electric version, uh, but this right. is like a fast electric version, and I'm curious to hear what you think. I actually really en- enjoyed it. I, there's, yeah. there's a sloppiness to it that uh, I found endearing. Um, you know, I would still say that I prefer the acoustic fast version, um, yeah. and maybe even a like a really good slow electric. But yeah. um, the you know the arrangement here it's in keeping with the energy of this show. Um, and I you know this was one of the things I put Stonesies for i put it <laughs> stonesy as an adjective to describe this because it reminds me of like a country rock song from you know uh it sounds like a song from like sticky fingers or xl on main street to me um, it's also and, like a sympathy for the friend of the devil <laughs> exactly so i appreciated like you know hearing that arrangement like what, what did you think yeah i, th- I th- you know calling back to the where do you enjoy Studio Dead? Like Friend of the Devil is a song that I really like the studio version of. Oh, yeah, the, the, Harper, the Harper College version is probably an even better version to my ears. But yeah, it's it's fun to hear this like moment in time where they would play it electric before they slowed it way down. Uh, and what jumped out to me about this version is that Bob is basically playing the lead because uh, Jerry's doing the sort of studio Friend of the Devil lick. And it might just be the mix, but Bob is very loud in the mix and plays a very Bob-type solo, which is Bob playing 80 different chords, but also with these little, like, curly cues and melody every once in a while. And, that you know, the, the rare moments where Bob gets to be sort of first and foremost guitar over Jerry are always kind of exciting to hear. And there's another one coming up later in the show. But, yeah, this is a, it's, a, it's, it's cool that we have three different Friends of the Devil uh, and three different arrangements. And unfortunately, there's no more to find. <laughs> there's no fourth fourth arrangement of Friend of the Devil. But yeah, I like this one a lot. Mm-hmm. 
she's my heart's delight. Oh, prison bait and the sheriff's on my trail. If he catches up with me, I'll spend my life in jail. First one say she got my child, but it don't look like me. Get out and run and run and take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep tonight. I wonder how often they played it like this. I, this, this seems like they didn't really stick with the fast electric version very long. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because I think it kind of disappeared out of set lists uh, after like early 70s yeah it, 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 and then it came back in the slow version so yeah it's like a song that they tinkered with a lot over the course of their time which you know i like i appreciate that about it but this is closer to my platonic ideal of friend of the devil uh than some of the slower versions even though i did i did rather like that friend, slow friend of the devil we heard on volume five so the next song is black-throated wind and this mm changes up the formula that we were talking about a little bit earlier where you had an upbeat Jerry song and now we're going into like a soulful Bob song. You know, yeah. that's not going to be the pattern that we see most of the time in this show. But uh, what's, no- what's noteworthy about this to me is that this is one of four songs from Bobby's debut solo LP Ace, which came out in June of 1972. And you know, I was just looking at Ace again, getting ready to do this episode, and I always forget that like playing in the band was on Ace and not on. I guess that was that on Skull and Roses too, as like a live version or not? Yeah, playing. Yeah, I can't remember, but I know like the studio version it, it debuted on Ace. And it's it, on Skull and Roses, yeah. It's on Skull and Roses. Um, so, but again, like going back to what we were saying earlier. You know, the dead were drawing from so many different sources for material at this time. And, uh, you know, as much as we talk about the Garcia Hunter partnership obviously being the marquee songwriting duo in this band, uh, Weir Barlow were coming up with some real gems at this yeah. time. And, 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 and you and I are both Black Throated Wind boosters. Yeah. This is, a, this is a Bobby song that I unabashedly have warm feelings about. And, yeah, this is just a, it's a really awesome version, like, through and through. And it's, uh, it, it's got your sort of typical showman Bobby outro, but it's the rare case where I'll, where I'll say that it unironically works. <laughs> like, he really builds up to, like, the big Bobby climax. Uh, but it, 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 it it's kind of like the version of that that he's probably aiming for for 23 years 43 years (laughs) after this uh but like this is the case the best case scenario for that where he is just sort of you know really going for it at the end really selling it uh yeah i I love this black throated wind it you know we've talked a lot about the set list structure of alternating between jerry songs and bob songs not just in this volume but previous volumes and that became like almost too codified later on in the Grateful Dead. Uh, but the fact that both Garcia and Ace came out this year 
sort of gives me a new perspective on that because it's almost like when Kiss did the four solo albums <laughs> at once <laughs> and all came and then came back together as Kiss. Like I almost feel like they're trying to like consciously share credit within the band uh, between Jerry and Bob. Like it's it, it is very much like we're we're promoting. Europe 72 hadn't come out yet at this point. It was almost out. Uh, but th- they've, they were on the road and they were promoting both of these solo albums, which were not Grateful Dead albums by name, but of course had other Grateful Dead members on them. Uh, so this back and forth, which can interrupt the flow of the sets a little bit, I think, uh, was a little bit like them trying to sell the albums, right? They're trying to yeah. like, like reflect the fact that they've, sort of gone their separate ways and then come back into one unit uh for for this era what also reminds me of like crosby stills nash and young like how there were different permutations of that band in the early 70s where like they didn't really make that many albums together but like crosby and nash made records together nash made records on his own obviously steven stills is making records on his own and you have Neil Young off doing his own thing all the time. And then when they come back together for their tour in 74, they're drawing songs from all over the place. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, now they become our band songs. But like, you still have your separate identity in under the umbrella of this group identity. And I think especially at this time, um, you know, those two songwriting partnerships were so active creatively and, and producing like a lot of great material and you know, it, it's easy for Weir Barlow to get overshadowed because Garcia Hunter is such a like monumental songwriting partnership. But um, right. you know, the contributions that the, that Weir Barlow made as a songwriting team to the Grateful Dead songbook, I mean, that can't be understated. I mean, they were, you know, they weren't reaching the heights of Garcia Hunter, but like they were like the George Harrison of the mm-hmm. band. You know, like yeah, they, were, absolutely. they were definitely providing that counterpoint. Um, yeah, there's this like fun, friendly rivalry going on in this era, which I like. What yeah. I like less is Bob doing covers. I mean, he didn't have nearly as many songs as Jerry had to pull from, so of course he had to go from covers. But yeah, putting "Friend of the Devil" and "Black Throated Wind" together is that's a really cool, like, you know, showdown, <laughs> friendly showdown of these songwriting teams. Uh, and in this case, they would almost, you know, I would give the nod, the judge's decision. Uh, to Bob and Barlow on that one. Oh yeah, they win that one. They're not going to win all of them in this show, but the, we, we got to give them that decision. Um, the next song we have. Our old inevitable. Yep. Yep. As we um, as we tease, it's going to show up. Almost every show <laughs> for this season, this tour. Yep. Can't get away from it. It's like our Groundhog Day. Yeah. You know? Wake up every morning and instead of <laughs> I got you, babe, it's Tennessee Jed coming back. You know, we had our uh, truce with Tennessee Jed in uh, Dick's Picks 9. And I think we both liked what Bruce Hornsby brought to the table. Yeah. Um, then we ripped it up in Volume 10. But, but like this version, I mean... I I made an allusion to this earlier about how like there's songs that we've joked about, you know, being sick of that I feel like in this show are played about as well as you could hope for them to be played. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to put Tennessee Jed in that camp. I think, um, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to sing Bill's praises again. I think 
he gives this song a swing that it desperately needs because I think a lot of times this song feels plotting to me and, and boring, but like the kick of Bill's drum on this rendition I think is, 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 is great. And I also feel like Keith brings what Bruce brought to the Dick's Picks 9 version. There's a great piano counterpoint to what Jerry is doing. And I think this song needs like a strong barrel house piano mm-hmm. presence. Yeah. Um, and when you have a guy as talented as Keith or, you know, Bruce on 9, it really elevates the song. So like I, I enjoyed this Jed more than I would normally do. Yeah. Well, Jed, I think, falls into the group of like Grateful Dead Chugul songs to me. And so the closer you get to Europe 72, the more I'm going to like Tennessee Jed because it has that, I guess, like the right sort of groove and momentum. If it just gets, if it gets slowed down like 10% more, it loses me. And that's where I think I have a lot of issues with, you know, all the late 70s and 80s and. Yeah, the 90s one was okay, but Tennessee Jed, it, it's just walking along the edge of the cliff <laughs> from being <laughs> an irritating song for me, but this is this is squarely in safe territory where, yeah, this is the kind of Tennessee Jed that I like. It's the right length, and it, yeah, I, I agree. Keith, Keith does a lot of heavy lifting here that makes it more tolerable to me. Speaking of Chugal, we go into Mexicali Blues. <laughs> Poco Chugal. Which, was this song canceled? Did we cancel this song? It's still canceled, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like this song. I, I've always liked this song, you know, even with the sort of, I guess, you know, disreputable underage girl <laughs> fraternizing that happens in the lyrics. Um, I always take it again as, you know, this is We Are Barlow writing their version of a Garcia Hunter outlaw song. So maybe we're not meant to uh, endorse the behavior of the character in the song we're just observing him this is what the reality was for sleaze bags out west <laughs> you know out on the loose right um and again i'm gonna say it again bill kicks ass on this song <laughs> i i feel like when this song has a good kick um you know there's there's certain versions of the song that i i think i made this comparison before that almost remind me of like the meat puppets like a cow punk right type vibe to it and i think when it has that energy uh it elevates the song for me mm-hmm. and this version has that so i really enjoyed it yeah yeah and billy's really showing how versatile he is as a drummer in this show too because he has to flip the switch between the jerry tunes and the bob tunes where he's asked to be this sort of you know chicken wire dive bar country drummer for Bob and then this very soulful or swingy jazzy drummer for the Jerry epics and he can do both. I mean, it's amazing that he is at the top of his game in this volume for sure. Well, I remember I read Bill's book and there's a bit in there where he talks about the Bobby Cowboy songs where he says that he never took those songs seriously. He, I think the term he uses is that he thought those songs were like a parody essentially <laughs> okay. yeah. you know and i think sometimes you know you can hear that in the performances i and i feel like you know like when you and i harp on songs like big river el paso mexicali blues the reason we don't like them is that they aren't they're performed like they're pacing themselves after maybe exerting 
themselves more forcefully like on the song before it's like oh yeah we ventured out we were trying really hard on this song we jammed it out now we're gonna play this placeholder song that we can coast on for three or four minutes and then we'll go on to something else that's what those songs feel like to me sometimes uh you know and that's why they kind of sound the same and you never really hear anything new in them and I'm not hearing that on this show. Like, I, I don't feel like they're doing that. They're, I don't, and so, again, these songs that I'd be bored by, usually, I find myself really responding to on this record. Right. There's no, they're not coasting, right? Yeah, these absolutely. Are, yeah, yeah. So, enough about Mexicali Blues, because <laughs> the next song is one of the real stars of this album, uh, without question, and that's Birdsong. Yeah. Uh, and it's the debut of this song on a Dick's Picks record, and it's going to appear again on volumes 23 and 36, which are also from September of 1972. So yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing more mind-blowing bird songs once we get to those records. And, I mean, I know you love this song. Yeah. This song it was is really... Like, yeah. I, think it's like, I think it's like one of my favorite dead songs. I, it would probably be like a top five song for me. Yeah. And it's, it was really having a moment in 1972. <laughs> I mean, this is the year, the first year it was played, right? And it's on Garcia. So again, promoting the solo albums. But yeah, between, you know, the Veneta version is so incredible. It's like just one of these performances that tells you everything that's great about the dead in 12 or 13 minutes. And I don't think this version is quite that good. But it might just be that I've heard the Veneta version so many times and for so long that it has become the version that all other versions are compared against. But yeah, this is it's so great. And it's the the thing that jumps out to me beyond the song in, into the jam is that you can hear all five members contributing so much. Like nobody is just holding down the the structure of the song or just doing sort of workman like music that everybody else is playing off of it's 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 five people having an active listening conversation uh it's just the kind of thing that very few bands have been able to do uh, at, at any point in their career or even aspired to do and the dead were just capable of nailing it apparently throughout you know summer and fall of 1972 uh, judging by by these versions, yeah, and, and just going back to what we were saying about Keith, and you know, as sad as it is to think about Pigpen, the state that he was in at this time, and how he was slowly fading away—not just from the band, but from the world at large. Um, the addition of Keith and what the Dead were able to do with a keyboard player like that in the band—I mean, you hear that on Birdsong. Like, mm. you, there's no way they could do that with Pigpen. You know, you needed someone with Keith's chops to pull off this song, which, again, it, it feels like you listen to it and you can just focus in on one guy every time you hear it. And they're going to be doing something cool. You can listen to Phil, Bill, Bob, Keith, Jerry. They're all doing something great, yeah. no matter what it is. And yet they're all connected and playing together perfectly you know it's like no one is soloing off on their own doing their own thing but they're doing something cool mm -hmm. you know no one is just sort of standing there um yeah it's just beautiful it's just like to me like 
as much as we talk about Dark Star, Dark Star is obviously amazing. You know, this is like the compact version of the dead doing that sort of going out into outer space thing and going as far out, but like in a more sort of compact way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, you can't say enough about Birdsong. Because I, I always focus on the music of the song. I don't really pay attention to the lyrics all that much. And I feel bad about that because the lyrics are beautiful. And it's about Janis Joplin. Right. Yeah, and, I mean, that's like a very explicit memorial song for Janis. Um, and not in a he's gone sort of way where it became a memorial song, but was written. I mean, I think in Robert Hunter's book of lyrics, it has like a for Janis dedication even so it's it's an explicit song about her yeah and it's a very robert hunter type lyric about death you know this Mm -hmm. sort of like you know this this fatalistic but also very zen type sentiment you know the line where he goes all i know is something like a bird within her saying all i know she sang a little while and then flew on Mm -hmm. yeah this idea that like you can't explain why these things happen they just do and you accept them like water flowing down a stream. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's the beauty of Robert Hunter's lyrics, you know? Yeah. You can really not just marvel at the writing, but there's some real wisdom that he carries in those words. So right. I feel like an idiot for not paying attention, because I normally pay attention <laughs> to Robert Hunter lyrics, but I'm always just so blown away by the music of that song and listening to the band. But I, the, the lyrics always kind of went one ear out the other. But I found myself really appreciating that more this time listening to this record. Yeah. Um, and then Bob 
reasserts himself. (laughs) (laughs) Brings you back to Earth, as he does frequently through this show, by uh, busting out Big River, which, all right, yeah, it's a big river. And then, like you said earlier, all of these songs have a little extra pep in this show, which never makes them boring. It's just, to me, it's, I know it bothers you less, but for me, it's a little bit like, I feel like this show is a little bit like a TV flipping channels. And on one channel, you have this like beautiful moving gospel service. Uh, And then you flip to the other channel and it's like the country Western bar and blues brothers where people are throwing beer bottles at the chicken wire. Uh, And it just happens again and again in this show (laughs) to the point where I, I mean, it doesn't even really annoy me. I just find it funny at some point and it is a very grateful dead thing to do so you know god bless him for doing this but it just it's it's a recurring gag throughout the entirety of this volume yeah it's it's weird because there are moments where i looked at the track list for this record and i was rolling my eyes at some of the transitions Mm -hmm. and there's one in particular later on that i was like why in the hell did they do that? Like, how is that going to work? And then I ended up really liking it. Right. And the thing, I, again, I go back to is that, like, with Big River, I think maybe I'm giving it too much credit because I was expecting to be bored when they went into that and maybe even thinking, oh, I'm going to use a bathroom break here. And it, every time, I was blown away. Like, I was like, this is like this sounds great. This is, like, as good of a Big River as I would want. Um, and man, I don't know if this was hitting me differently just because I had some issues with the two drummer lineup in Dick's Picks 10. Like there were moments where I felt like the rhythm section derailed the band, even though, like we said, there was other moments that I thought that they did great, that I really loved what they were doing. But, you know, this is an old (laughs) argument among dead fans, but I was like, Jesus Christ, Bill was so good on his own. And right. the dead had a real pocket when it was just Bill. And I just found myself really loving One Drummer Dead listening to the show. I mean, 1972 Dead uh, is like such an indictment of Mickey Hart. I mean, I hate <laughs> to say it like that, but it's like you listen to this and you're like, why in the hell did they not just stick with Bill? Right. This and is then, like such a great, not just like a great esoteric experimental rock band that we get on Birdsong, but they're also like a kick-ass rock band. They can and they can switch between one and the other really effectively. And yeah. uh, you know, it's, I just found myself feeling like, "Oh, why?" why? As, <laughs> as much as I love Mickey in a lot of ways, I was like, "Oh, this this band was so good with this yeah. lineup." I think that's the pure dead experience. I mean, it's really interesting to compare him to Charlie Watts because in a way that really flatters Bill because he could play like Charlie Watts, but then he had this other whole dimension to him right? that I don't think Charlie Watts is capable of, uh, where he can just play in these like free zones and generate his own contributions like he does in Birdsong, like he does later on in playing in the band, like he does in Dark Star. Uh, Maybe I'm underestimating Charlie Watts, but I don't think he would really be quite as home in those types of situations, whereas I'm sure he would nail Big River <laughs> and a yeah. number of the stonesier songs that you talk about here. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, this is this volume, even more so than the Europe 72 collection, is just a love letter to what Bill brought to the band. And yeah. you wish that you had this 
had more of this pure Billy experience, but that's that's the way it is. I mean, you, you just said it really well. I mean, like with Bill, you did have multiple drummers, you know, in one guy. You had Charlie yeah. Watts on some songs, and you had like Jack DeJohnette on other songs. And <laughs> right. You had, you know, he could be a rock, like a great rock drummer, and he could be like a jazzier drummer in other songs. Uh, and it just made the dead so dynamic and versatile. Uh, and and I think that's why I, I'm more tolerant of that switching channels quality that you talked about in this show because I, I'm just marveling at how well they could do both. Mm-hmm. And so it's not annoying to me maybe as it would be later on when there's weird pacing in Grateful Dead shows where you feel like the more sort of straight-ahead rock songs don't come off quite as well either because they're older or maybe there's issues in the rhythm section or whatever the case may be. Um, the next song is Broke Down Palace. And this yeah. is another song that I feel like you and I, and I'm sure all Dead fans love this song. And the first Broke Down Palace of Dick's Picks was in Five, which I believe that was the 1979 show mm-hmm. with uh, early Brent era. It's fair to say that this version is much better. Yeah. That one. <laughs> like, well, there's like there's there's Grateful Dead songs that I think of as almost like church hymns. Like Brookdown Palace is one of them. Uh, Addicts of My Life is one of them, which also shows up in this show. And We Bid You Good Night kind of fits into that as well. Uh, and I like them in that role where they would kind of play it at the end of the night as you know like a very spiritual. Uh, punctuation mark uh, to a, a an emotionally exhausting show, uh, but I like these early broke down palaces, which have a little more like raggeded feel to them. Like I don't even know if there are drums on later on 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 broke down palace later on. Like I feel like it's to me in my mind it's always mostly acapella, uh, but like these sort of scrappier versions are you know pretty cool to hear. I think uh, so in kind of tucking it into the first set like this makes it a little different experience again. Like starting off with Morning Dew, where hearing it in a different context makes you think about the song in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about how Broke Down Palace is like one of the only dead songs where the vocals are carrying the load of the emotional payoff of the song. I mean, there's no real big instrumental section of this song that takes you off and, and delivers the payoff. There's no big Jerry Garcia guitar solo, really, mm-hmm. in this song. It's about the sound of these guys singing together, especially at the end, when it has this anthemic quality in a way, like where they're sort of shout singing a little bit at the end, but it's really right. beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it really, it always moves me when I when I hear that. Um, and yeah, and it, given that there were so many overdubs on Europe 72... It's nice to hear that they actually sounded really great to together, right? In a very in a live, unadorned context, like some of those Europe seventy two songs, they sound like very much like they're standing in an echo chamber, which they probably <laughs> were because yeah. they came back and decided we're going to re-record all the vocals on this record. Uh, but yeah, I mean they they sounded fine, you know, Phil. I was listening to hear if Donna was on this song, and she may be and may not be. It was one of those, like you said, where it's hard to tell if she's there and just way turned down or maybe not there at all and 
I think I settled on thinking that she's not there at all. And I don't think so. Phil is taking the high harmony part, which can go easily <laughs> awry <laughs> in other versions. But, you know, they, they, they sound pretty dead on here for not, you know, being uh, in a controlled environment and with God knows what monitors. I feel like this song, it benefits from a little bit of a ragged vocal to it. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I think that their vocals are pretty spot on. Yeah, but the the sh- again like the shout singing at the end, and I hate calling it shout singing because that sounds like I'm putting it down, and I'm not. But there is this sort of cathartic quality to the vocals that they share at the end of the song that I just find really moving. And I've heard other uh, renditions of this song from this era, and that always gets to me like that part of the song. Um, so. Yeah, Broke Down Palace. And and again, another beautiful Robert Hunter lyric written on the same day as Ripple. You know, again, famous story. Great day in Grateful Dead history. Yeah. We go from the heights of Broke Down Palace (laughs) to El Paso. Here we go again, yeah. (laughs) You know, look, I feel like we've, we've talked about this dynamic already. I don't have a ton to say about El Paso other than to say, again, that I enjoyed this more than I probably would usually because I this is about as well played of an El Paso as I could hope for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I will say at least it comes here and not out of a dark star <laughs> like it did <laughs> frequently in this era, which is always like, I mean, I, I appreciate the ballsiness <laughs> of doing that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, yeah, maybe not the most emotionally... Uh, logical decision so you know it's fine we're in the first set still and things are bouncing back and forth and there's there's time later on for more of a flow i mean this that might have been where i would have taken a bathroom break normally <laughs> oh, like yeah. on a normal show but again i liked that rendition more than i would normally yeah uh, so that brings us to the end of disc one going over to disc two and we're starting to really get the fire going on this record at this point we we hit the china writer yeah it's like the uh, and, second in our uh, trilogy of china writers yeah right? we're, we're swimming in china writers right now and it's fair to say i think that the china writers are getting better with each record mm-hmm. and maybe on 12 we're gonna hit a new peak i don't want to oh, spoiler yeah. alert too much but you know yeah, i'll spoil it we are it's- <laughs> It's like the best one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But like, yeah, it is an incredible China writer uh, waiting for us on on Dick's Picks 12. But this one, you know, don't kick it out of bed. This one is really good too. (laughs) Dick's Picks 11. uh, We talked about it already. There's that, I guess, 25 second bit in the middle of I Know You Writer, which is taken from the the September 24th show. I didn't notice it until it was pointed out to me. We've pointed it out to you. I think it still sounds great. And if you're mm-hmm. a purist, set your purity aside and just enjoy the song. It sounds really good. <laughs> um, yeah. It's another and- one where I feel like Bob takes some pretty strong leads, too, in the transition jam between China and Ryder, which I don't think is typically the case. And it might just, or maybe it is, and it's just the mix is so Bob heavy on this particular version, but I really appreciated what he was doing between the two songs. He seemed like he was at the uh, steering wheel uh, between the, between the two halves of this one. 
I mean, I feel like we're going to talk about China Rider a lot in our next episode, so maybe we should go on to playing in the band. Yeah. And just say that this is a really good version. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's it's an average great version for that time, right? <laughs> it's like all China Riders of this era are super good, and it doesn't have the rust of the Volume 10 version. Right. I was going to say that, like, I think I appreciated this a little bit more coming off of 10, which mm-hmm. 10 was, it was fun, but I think we both agreed that it was more about being in the room than it is listening to it on the record. Like the yeah. 10 version is, it's okay. This is like a really great version because every China writer in 72 probably was great. And then in 12, we're going to be seeing the face of Jesus Christ himself when we <laughs> hear the transition and everything in that, in that performance. Um, going into playing in the band. Um, I feel like I'm a broken record in this show. Maybe you should take the lead in talking about Bill. I've talked yeah. a lot about Bill. Um, but Well, we, G- we talked Jesus. about how it, he can be like two different kinds of drummers. and This one, I almost feel like he sounds like two drummers at once. And if you've seen the movie Sunshine Daydream, uh, we we did sort of a co-watch party of that a couple months ago, but uh, it's, it's something you can queue up. The, the most amazing thing to me about the Veneta performance that's in Sunshine Daydream is how small Billy's kit is because my mental image of the dead's drummers is always like two guys just like swimming in percussion instruments, like every drum and percussion instrument ever invented <laughs> is around these guys on stage. Uh, but then you go back to like uh, 72 and he's playing like your normal trap kit, right? There's nothing fancy on it. Uh, no. But the fact that he gets so much sound out of, the basic drummer setup just blows my mind. And I don't know as much about drums as I do about other instruments, but I, I can't even wrap my mind around how much variety he gets out of, you know, a very limited set of drums and cymbals. Uh, and it's all on display in this plane in the band to the point where like he just, if you closed your eyes, you would think that there were two different drummers playing uh at at different points in this jam because there's like a completely different pattern happening on the cymbals than are happening on the drums Uh, he was just in the zone (laughs) in the show uh and it's 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 a marvel to listen to i guess like yeah it's it's so good well i was reading the uh, the book that we often cite on this show this is a dream this is all a dream we dream the blair jackson david gans oral history of the dead and uh, there's a bit in there where Phil and Donna are talking about how Bill really stepped it up on the Europe 72 tour. And they felt like he had hit a new plateau as a player on that tour. And that obviously carried over into these fall of 72 shows. And something Donna said stuck with me. And I think it really applies to this song in particular, where she says that Bill played like a dancer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that, really uh rings true for me because and this is such a cliche thing to say about a musician but it's all about feel with with when you play and great musicians when they play an instrument you can tell it's them and it's something that just comes off of their hands and muscles and the way that they approach the instrument and with bill what knocks me out on this song is He's not playing like a typical rock drummer. He's not like beating the hell out of his drums. He's not going for like the sort of obvious displays of power 
that you would expect from like a John Bonham or, or, or Keith Moon. You know, Keith Moon being a very busy drummer himself and a great rock drummer. I love Keith Moon, but like Bill is never bombastic. He's so tasteful, even when he's doing so many different things at once. And then at the end of the song where it does kind of require for him to have like a bigger rock sound when they come back into the into the out of the jam and into the playing of the band part. He can do that too, but I don't know. He's never overbearing and yet he always makes his presence felt mm-hmm. at the same time. And I I just think he's so unique in the rock world in that way that uh he can be a very forceful drummer who you notice immediately because of all the great things that he's doing. And yet it never feels like bombastic or like he's going to derail the song because he's doing too much, which again, I feel like on the Dick's Picks 10 episode, there were moments where I felt like the two drummer dead were going in that direction because mm-hmm. you, you, know, you you have the two headed monster at that point And it's hard right. to know where the other guy's going to go. And man, like when you've got a guy like that back there, like your band can really do anything, you know. Right. And the in the dead in seventy two really could, you know. And yeah. again, I keep saying the same thing, but I really believe that Bill had a lot to do with that. Yeah, I mean, the word I would use is fluid. Like he's so good at you know riding the waves of a jam, and without, as you say, being overbearing and being flashy. And playing in the band is the perfect song for that approach because it is. It tends to lead to the most free moments of the dead in this era, I think, even more so than Dark Star. Like, playing in the band is way more out, I think, than a lot of Dark Stars are. And so, and where a plan connects with me or not, I think has a lot to do with how much Billy is, you know, staying at the reins of the jam. Like, because it's... It, as we've talked about before, there's like nobody in the dead who is just simply keeping time. <laughs> and so he, he kind of has to do that at the same time as being flexible enough to morph around what the rest of them are doing. And when he really nails that, like I think he does on this version, uh, it's so exciting to hear this. This plan is also in uh, again, like volume 10 in my, Goldilocks zone for playing in the bands where it's 16 minutes long anything too much longer than that or too much shorter than that I kind of kind of loses me uh, but this is one that I don't ever get bored of I guess it, 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 it seems to have a good strong momentum through the whole thing and yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a great one and even if they were playing it every night like it's this is a, a special version I think
I have a confession to make. I've never been much of a golfer. I mean, look, I've done mini golfing before, but that game where you walk around a big field with other old people and you swing balls and you hit them really far, I've never really done that game before. To be honest with you, it never seemed very rock and roll to me. But I'm willing to change my mind. And I think I'm going to start doing it now because of this company called Sinlon. Sinlon is an environmentally friendly company that makes turf for businesses and homes. And they make it from eco-friendly ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. And right now they're doing this really cool offer for 36 from the Vault listeners where they're giving away basically, it's like a putting green. They call it a putting green system and apparently it's revolutionary and I'm going to take their word for it because it sounds really cool but basically this is something that you can put in your backyard and you can become a master golfer by practicing on this putting green uh, so I'm going to give it a shot and I think you should too what you want to do is you want to go to www.sinlon.com backslash 36ftv again that's sinlon.com backslash 36ftv and you can enter in for a contest to get this free putting green and become a master golfer with me so this is the end of the first set right here this song it's in the middle of the second disc but it's the end of the first set it's a long first set i mean that yeah I mean, it had to be like close to ninety minutes or so, or or eighty minutes or yeah, so. Yeah, the, the whole show is three and a half, I think. So, and they're pretty evenly split. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the uh, a typical dead show for they the were, time. I think they, they were, were smelling just... themselves, as they say, at this time. Yeah. <laughs> they knew that they were the shit. So it, let's just play forever. Um, so this the second set begins with "He's Gone." One of the songs, of course, that will end up on Europe 72. And um, it's interesting because, I mean, we've been, you know, giving Bill a serious tongue bath in this episode. And he's good in this song. I will say that one thing about He's Gone, and I've said this in other episodes, that I kind of like this song when it's not that tight. And uh, it sounds a little more broken down. And like I feel like you get that in the Dick's Picks one version, uh, mm-hmm. which I I really love that version. And this is a song that I kind of like when the older Dead plays it, uh, because yeah. they're just naturally slower. And you also get a more, you know, you get an older Jerry with a more beat up sounding voice, and it just feels like the sense of loss that permeates this song. It just I feel it more when the Dead feel like they're also broken down a little bit so i i like this version uh especially like once it gets into the back half of the song you know like nothing's gonna bring them back that whole thing i guess that's around like the eight minute mark and that's where it kind of starts to break down too a little bit around there and that's probably my favorite part Mm of it the beginning part is is good it's well played i I, i'm not as engaged with that though usually uh when when i listen to this yeah yeah, it's a curious song because it did start out as one of the like a kind of an upbeat Grateful Dead song. Like it, the Europe '72 version is fast, and I think the tape is even sped up a little bit on that Europe '72 version versus like the actual recording of that show that it was taken from. But it has this real like peppy beat to it, which is not at all what I associate uh, with "He's Gone," <clears throat> and it's one of these songs that. 
yeah, as you say, sort of gradually slowed down over the career of the dead and probably benefited from that. And it also kind of goes with this thematic change from it being a song about Lenny Hart running off with their money to being more of a memorial song, more akin to Birdsong later on in their career. Uh, So this version is kind of catching it in between those things. Like it's slower than the Europe 72 version, but is also not as slow as say the, you know, the nineties version that we heard on volume nine, which was, you know, very explicitly a tribute to Brent and had that soulful, mournful quality uh, that this version is just can't quite get to that emotional depth. And it's, it's okay. It's kind of funny that it's the second set opener because I feel like both sets start with, sort of tearjerker songs <laughs> in a way which is not the way you would think a rock show would be organized but that is also me sort of superimposing the later he's gone onto this era of he's gone when it was uh, you know kind of a a quirky song about their manager ripping right. them off not anything to like you know weep yeah, about. I, mean, I was just thinking like you know they hadn't even lost pig pen yet you know like they hadn't experienced all the right. loss that they were going to be experiencing in the years ahead and you know, they were still relatively young men, so it has that quality to it. It doesn't have the tragic elements, I guess, of later versions. We're actually going to get a really good He's Gone coming up on that Dick's Picks 13 episode, the the Bobby Seal dedication uh, uh, oh, sure. uh, from, from 13. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. Um, the next four songs here, I don't know how much you want to talk about like these songs individually, I kind of feel like we should just group them together because I feel like you and I would agree yeah. that this is like the least interesting part of the record, which you have me and my uncle deal greatest story ever told and ramble on Rose. I think all the things that we've already said about the songs that maybe we're not super excited about being performed really well applies to these mm-hmm. songs. I don't have a ton else to say about these unless you're dying to break any of these songs down (laughs) no i mean they're all played well and it's enjoyable but i wrote down that it was like first set part two (laughs) right uh because it does seem like like the more songy side of the dead making a little return here uh between the improvisational tent poles of playing in the band ending the first set and dark star that's coming up uh yeah you know it it it's songs that we'll hear a million times uh, during the run and probably better versions of these songs will appear. Maybe Greatest Story Ever Told is kind of at a peak moment here in 72. I mean, it's another Ace song and another, and it's a one of the few songs where you can really clearly hear Donna, though it's not my favorite song to hear Donna on, I gotta say. Like a lot of the criticisms of Donna from Donna Haters. I feel like actually does apply to greatest story ever told because it gets a little shrill right. <laughs> at times. Well, um, and but yeah, it's you know it's a, it's a fun stretch, but not really a noteworthy stretch. Yeah, I mean, it re- and it repeats something that we were talking about earlier, where you know you have greatest story ever told, which is an ace song that's preceded by Deal, which is from Garcia. So it's yeah. another instance where Jerry and Bob are kind of trading songs from their solo records. I would say Deal wins that matchup you know for doing the the matchup of solo records and deal of course will end up being a song that i associate that with being like a a set one closer 
Like I feel like that was a song they went to a lot in the eighties to right. close. And sets. a song that uh that Brent really shined on, right? I mean that's a one of the classic Brent organ songs. Right. So hearing it without that big rich Hammond is always a little disorienting. Well, enough about these four songs, because we want to get to the Dark Star. Let's get to the yeah. Dark Star on disc three. And um, this is our first Dark Star since Dick's Pick 7. Yeah, and, pretty long time. Yeah. Especially since like the Dick's Pick series, as some people brought up when we were talking about Volume 2 and not being super into the Dark Star, but that the Dick's Pick series was really in part about bringing the legend of dark star that was only available to really avid grateful dead tapers uh to a broader audience because people hadn't heard that many dark stars uh if you weren't trading tapes so uh you got all these different versions of this you know iconic grateful dead song so yeah so here we are with uh another fine example and a very long example 30 minutes 30 minutes plus yeah 30 minutes plus and it's interesting because um there's another dark star that appears on dicks picks 36 that's from the september 21st show six days before this one and that dark star is 37 minutes long and that's considered one of the great dark stars of all time and i and i will say that i think that dark star if you listen to that one and then you listen to this one on 11 it diminishes the 11 one i think the 11 one is really great on its own um it reminds me of the dark star from veneta that is again one month prior another very well regarded dark star one of the greatest i think again i think people talk about the dark star from dick's picks four they talk about veneta and they talk about the one from Dick's Picks 36. I, I feel like yeah. I hear those as being like the top three or among, you know, the best Dark Stars yeah. ever. I would throw the uh, the Live Dead Dark Star. Of course. It's probably the other one in that group. Of yeah. course. But I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the episode about how 72 is pointing the way to what we're going to hear in 73, 74. And I feel like Dark Star... And the playing in the band, like like especially, mm-hmm. you hear the like the, the inklings of what's to come, because uh, this is like a very kind of jazzy, mellow, dark star, a far cry from the dark star that we heard on four, for instance. Right. Yeah, and it's like you can hear almost the exact moment where Keith steps up and steers it into that more jazzy territory, which I really thought was cool because the first. You know, 10 minutes or so are typical cosmic rock dark star that you would have heard for any time in the previous like three or four years of the Grateful Dead. Uh, And it's very good, of course, and I love it. But where it really starts to get interesting is right around that 10th minute where Keith hits upon a, a, a pretty jazzy piano part on his on his keyboard and everybody else follows him into that. And it gives you this little sneak preview of what they're going to explore in 73 and 74, not just in the Dark Stars, but Eyes of the World, for instance, or a lot of the more fusion-y playing in the bands. Uh, Yeah, that was the most foreshadowing that I saw in the entire show of where the dead was headed versus where they had just been 
as far as all these uh, you know classic Europe, Europe 72 type material There's a weakness to this Dark Star. It's that there's not really like any moments of like tension and release. Like it seems like it's very amiable. It's very listenable. I know, right. like when I, you know, revisited the Dark Star from Dick's Picks 36, that was the distinction that I made because like the 36 version has some moments of like real dissonance to it, where it goes mm-hmm. to like a, a pretty dark place. And then it goes back to the the beautiful stargazy sound, uh, right? And I feel like this dark star stays more in the stargazy sound, which I love. I think again, like on its own terms, it's great to listen to, and it's very like if if you're looking for like good meditation music. I mean, this is a great dark star to listen to. <laughs> yeah, puts you in a very peaceful place. Um, but you know, if we're going to compare it to like the very best versions of this song, I, I that to me would what separates it and maybe puts it a little bit lower yeah no i agree with that i still like the volume four version a little bit more uh, because it does have that narrative of going into the dark and then back out into the light and this one is very laid back to the point where they almost forget to sing the verse (laughs) i think It, it doesn't come in until 24 minutes into the song and it made me research whether there are dark stars where they just totally forgot to sing because they they almost miss it in this one i mean it it comes in very late and it almost and it comes in very abruptly because it comes out of a really sparse period and then all of a sudden they like very consciously like jump back into the song (laughs) to the point where it sounds like somebody like elbowed jerry in the ribs and said (laughs) Hey, you have to actually like sing a verse of this song or it doesn't count. So, and there are a few versions that are labeled as instrumental. So, like they just played the theme of Dark Star for 20 some 30 some minutes without ever actually getting to the words, which is great because it just feels like the natural progression of this song that like at some point they don't even need to make it a song, right? It's just yeah. like a it's like a vibe. It's a mood uh, that they would explore for a half hour every night. So, yeah, it, it, it's a cool version. There, I think it loses a little steam towards the end, and 
part of what took me out of the spell of Dark Star was that this happens in the Veneta version too, I noticed, and maybe because there's you can watch it on video in the Sunshine Daydream movie, but there are parts around the 20th to 25th minute where it's pretty clear that only some of the band is on stage and playing. Yeah. <laughs> and so it almost feels like Dark Star was kind of a break song for them as well. And it reminds me of like how they talked about later on that drum space sort of filled the role of Dark Star for the dead. So they didn't have to play Dark Star itself because drum space was kind of doing its job for it. And they meant that from a musical perspective where it was like, we're going to do the drum part, we're going to do the space part, and we're hitting all the... Uh, same colors as a big dark star jam would have in the 60s and 70s uh, but i also feel like it was the song where if somebody had to go to the bathroom <laughs> they could leave for a couple minutes and nobody would really notice because there are some parts where you just get like it's just billy and phil or here's a part where bill disappears for a couple minutes and it's just the guitarist playing uh so i guess the charitable version is that they're pairing off in these like duos and trios that make for interesting improvisation. But I think the more practical read on it is we're an hour into the second set. And sometimes I had to take care of a little business uh, off off stage, which could take many different forms, but there's a little bit of like a, uh, uh, a loss of the magic (laughs) when you start thinking about it that way. Well, if the dead is like me, it's like, you know, they go into the set break you take a piss, you break the seal, and then you have another beer or something. You got to piss <laughs> yeah. a lot sooner. Like once the seal is broken, you got to piss. Like you can't wait another two hours. So I definitely think that the you know there were moments where they're like, okay, guys, you got it. You got this for like five minutes. I'm gonna go back, <laughs> right. hit the head. Um, yeah. Now, okay. <laughs> Next, we have like the weirdest transition in the yeah. show that I think works way better than I expected. And that right. is them slamming into Cumberland <laughs> after this. And because um, I remember looking at the at the track list and just like rolling my eyes like, what? <laughs> and, then, and, yeah. and, it, and it does seem, you know, like the most egregious version of like what you we've been talking about this whole show, like where they go into the, you know, the stars and they're going really far playing this beautiful jammy music. And then they go like right into like a Bobby rocker or i mean right. it's just like band rocker i guess but well yeah and there's a big difference here too because i i'm it, it seems pretty clear that this was phil's decision like the if you listen to it so jerry they go back into the they they or they don't even go back into the verse they remember to sing the first verse and then there's a little bit more typical dark star jamming after that and then out of nowhere Phil just starts playing the Cumberland Blues baseline, <laughs> like really insistently. Like I sort of like I am segueing. I'm doing this segue, and you all are just gonna follow me. Like this is not a suggestion. And I don't know if Phil was just tired of doing Dark Star that night or what. Uh, but it turns out to be a really inspired choice. I agree with you. Like it's something on paper, especially because at this time they were doing a lot of Dark Star in the Morning Dew. And they've already fired the Morning Dew bullet, so they can't pull that one off this night. So what are they going to play? Well, what's the opposite of Morning Dew? It's uh, Cumberland Blues. <laughs> right. Which, and I feel like, you know, we were talking about how the Dark Star doesn't really have the tension and release. There's no, like, uh, 
there's no moment in the in that in that dark star like where things get really dissonant and loud and crazy and then it explodes and then maybe they chill out after that and i wonder in a way like if all that energy that they didn't release in the dark star it, it feels like it goes into the cumberland blues because you know this, this version is like it's a little sloppier it, it it's faster um, it's a little longer. It's longer, yeah. but it has such a great energy to it. And you feel like the momentum that they were building up in Dark Star just pours into this song. And uh, yeah, it ends up being this thing like where it, it sounds inspired. And it's not just mm-hmm. them sort of stepping on their own feet again, you know, stepping on a beautiful moment with like, you know, with one of these, uh, you know, boilerplate rock songs from their repertoire. to and this is like another kind of weird like I guess record scratch in this show because they go from that to um, they go into Addicts of My Life which is this sort of like funeral paced ballad from American Beauty this is it's Dick's Picks debut and I think it's the only Dick's Picks that it's on I mean they didn't play this song very much yeah Um, I mean it got retired pretty much from this year until the late late eighties. Well, and wasn't this like the last time they played it until eighty nine? Wow, is it really? Yeah, I think huh. I think they played it like in seventy, and they played it here, and then they brought it back in eighty nine. Huh. Wow. Uh, and I mean, it's a good song. I mean, the version I always think of is from the Fairly Well concert, right? Um. And, you know, with, with, of all the, I mean, look, uh, I think we can all agree that there were like numerous musical issues from that concert. Yeah, I, mean, there, I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like a lot of fun to watch and, and uh, you know, and to be a part of that. But uh, I think that's another example of like the dead playing one of these mournful ballads as an older band where it worked really well. And I think especially yeah. in that context, um it was a really moving performance. Like they're almost like a little too young at this time to be playing a song like this because th- this feels mm-hmm. like a looking back on your life type song yeah. and taking stock of everything. And well, I absolutely like I I was at that show and I cried like a baby <laughs> during <laughs> Addicts of My Life, so I totally agree with you. I mean, it was like talk about emotional climaxes of Grateful Dead concerts like that just hit me straight on and hit a lot of people straight on even though you know the 
a, a week before we recorded this episode, they did the fairly well uh, webcast, and uh, yeah, that those shows they've they've got a lot of issues, as you say, and even Addicts of My Life is a little rough around the edges. But man, yeah, it it's a song that when they play it in the right spot, it can really really hurt really hit you yeah it's <laughs> really smack you it's like watching your grandpa cry you know like <laughs> yeah. you see the dead play that in their 70s it's like oh my god this yeah is, this yeah is and they were showing photos of all the band members on the screens while they were singing it and everybody was doing like the cheer for different band members which was a little bit like darkly humorous because like they showed vince and it got like a murmur of a cheer oh, <laughs> i man, know which brutal. is that was a little painful uh but for me personally as like a like fish fan that was at the grateful dead show that was like one of the best moments because when they showed trey they showed all the members of the fairly well band too and when they showed trey there was like one of the loudest cheers because he had won over all the deadheads and i was like Oh, I'm so proud of my guy. <laughs> but yeah, it was super moving. Not as moving in this show, I got to say, but it is like nicely placed. Yeah. And it's a little bit like, um, you know, if they had already fired the bullet of Morning Dew early on in the show, they kind of reverse engineered the Morning Dew feeling a little bit because they got like this Cumberland Blues sort of hot intensity coming out of the Dark Star. Uh, but then also the like uh, almost church-like uh, intensity, emotional intensity of addicts coming after that. So yeah. it's a it's a quirky little set list uh, run here that you know probably as you say shouldn't work on paper, but actually works quite well. I think. And it's cool to hear because it's such a rare song. Although I will say that I know like the dead were playing sing me back home a lot at this time the merle haggard song yeah and which I, is amazing in veneta yeah right and i feel like this song is occupying that spot in the set list because mm-hmm. those songs have a similar feel to them and uh i mean i'm glad this is here again because it's rare but i wonder if that would have been a little bit more satisfying in the context of the mm-hmm. show again i love this album so i'm i'm nitpicking with that i'm just speculating um but I love hearing it here. Um, so we've gone this long, no Chuck Berry songs yet. What, what a miracle. <laughs> we haven't had any Chuck Berry covers yet. But Bobby's got a few tricks up his sleeve as or up his shorts. You know, He wasn't wearing yeah. shorts at this time. Um, we get We're promise, very tight jeans. Tight yeah. jeans for the ladies out there. Um, we get Promised Land, of course. And um, I mean, you talked about this earlier about the switcheroos of this set. I mean, Promised Land was one of the stock show opening songs during this Yeah, era. they pretty much alternated Promised Land and Bertha for openers with a few curveballs here and there. But yeah, you, you would normally hear this to kick off, kick off a dead show. And, you know, it seems like they're building toward not the typical cathartic moment that we'd expect at the end of a dead show. This feels more like um, like a like a standard rock band playing some of their biggest hits at the end to get the mm-hmm. crowd on their feet type conclusion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it. yeah, you're right. I mean, this is, the next two songs especially are like the hits, quote unquote, from Working Man's Dead and they're wrapped in a 
Chuck Berry sandwich. <laughs> so somehow, uh, you know, Bob went almost an entire show without playing a Chuck Berry cover, and he squeezes the double berry into the final four songs of the show. <laughs> Gotta do the double berry, man. That's, that's Bob's <laughs> trademark. Um, but before we get to the second half of the berry, we have Uncle John's Band. And yep. I wrote this in our notes. You know, this is a great song. I love Uncle John's Band. I will say that for Dick's Picks, this is probably the best Grateful Dead song that I'm like least excited to hear, usually. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's because it usually comes at the end. And um, every song, every version of this song sounds the same. So I'm not knocking the song at all. I think it's a great song. This is actually a song that, you know, you talked about um, Friend of the Devil preferring the studio version. I, I'd probably say that about Uncle John's Band, too. I, yeah. I think I like yeah, the I studio version the most. So great song i'm not that excited to hear it on the tape i'm sure if i was at the show it would have been i would have been very excited to hear it right yeah i think it's a song that never really fully lived up never really found its live role i mean that they played it a lot uh i i, I kind of like when they would play it in sort of a quirky segue way with playing in the band. Like they did some palindrome things where they would do playing in Uncle John's band back into something else into Uncle John's band into playing in the band. And I like that sort of set list function that it would find later on. But I think the they captured it so well on Working Man's Dead that a lot of live versions just don't quite live up to that mental image. Yeah, I mean, I guess... The exception you would make is the Dix Picks Eight version, the Harper College, you know, where there it, it, mm. it, it concludes the the acoustic set. Um, that's a cool version, but yeah, I think yeah. I would still take Working Man's Dead uh, version over any live version of that song. Um, yeah. After that, we go into Casey Jones, and um, I feel like you can hear the crowd cheer a little bit when they start playing this song, and it just makes me think again that the dead were sort of ending like with their biggest hits like was this song already considered like a radio hit i guess it was probably in 72 it was probably the closest thing to one right i mean it 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 was only a hit on you know your sort of like freeform off mainstream fm stations uh because as we talked about i think a few episodes ago like the cocaine line basically banned it from (laughs) <laughs> any reputable radio station at the time uh but you know for you know, your wfmu listeners in jersey city they probably heard casey jones a lot so yeah i think uh at this point the closest thing the dead had to a radio hit would be casey jones so throwing it in at the end of the show is yeah as you say the traditional rock band move and i I think the cocaine line, it kept it off of like AM radio, but I'm sure Mm -hmm. it also made the song a favorite for a lot of people just because it referenced cocaine so prominently. (laughs) Sure. I'm sure lots of people are like, cocaine! Yeah! (laughs) Um, Now, this is like a big surprise for me. Coming at the end here, we finished the double berry around and around. (laughs) I had written some snarky things in our notes. Yeah, because I was like, I'm not even gonna listen to this. I because I because like for Chuck Berry covers, like Around and Around is by far my least favorite that the Dead do. Right. I like this version. This version actually sounds more like the original Chuck Berry 
cut as well as like the Stones cover of this. It just right, it, yeah. It's a little faster and it swings harder and it it, it it just rocks a little bit harder. I feel like a lot of times they play this song, and I think in one episode I, I described it as smarmy sounding because it it <laughs> feels like a little like cutesy and it can be really slow when the dead play it. Um, yeah. I still think they should have just ended with Casey Jones. I, that probably just would have been a great closer, but you know they have to end with a Chuck Berry song, right? And uh, so I, I'm going to surprise myself and say I actually this is like probably my favorite version of Around and Around by the Grateful Dead that I've heard. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so to be clear, Casey Jones ended the second set, and then Around and Around was the encore. Right. So. Okay. You're right. Like they they were they're kind of double closers, I guess, but. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I wish you had brought this up earlier so I could have <laughs> listened to Around and Around with a more uh, careful ear because I was kind of like, oh, it's Around and Around again. I guess I can tune this out. But all right, I'm going to go back and listen to here if the this is the, the special Around and Around. Like, what was the, uh, we heard the best uh, version of some Bobby Blues song a few volumes ago. <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say, like, if, if we were at this show... Like you would have like snuck out to get to the car, and you'd be like, "Where's Steve? Like Steve's enjoying around and around <laughs> inside yeah, the I Stanley we Theater. Meeting. What the hell is going on?" But that, yeah. that's just how much I like this show. And again, you know, I think going back to what we've talked about already, our favorite Dick's picks, we talk about four, and we talk about eight, both from mm-hmm. nineteen seventy. Um, I think again, this is talking so far. This show rivals those shows for me. I mean, eight is so great because of the acoustic set, obviously. Right. And then four yeah. has that middle disc um, with the Dark Star and um, is the other one. And the other one, the, yeah. those are on the same disc. And then Dancing in the Street. Is it? Because there's three great jams on that like that are like yeah. a half hour. What's the. Well, there's a Love Light on the third Love disc, Light is yeah. on the third one. Yeah. Okay. And. Um, so that second disc is is pretty amazing from from four, um, but the, the the case I'd make for eleven is that you have incredible jams, obviously several mm-hmm. huge peaks, and then um, the songs that maybe aren't my favorite most of the time. I again I love them so much on this record, just because I think the band was in such a zone at this time. Um, so yeah, 11 I think is a really strong entry. Yeah. And I like that it is such a good complement to Europe 72. Like this is what the band sounded like just a few months removed from that record. But also without the studio trickery and with them building upon the success of what they achieved at, at Europe 72 and working towards the future. So yeah, I agree. It's in the top tier of the Dick's Picks we've heard so far. I'm still reserving Volume 4 as my favorite, and I'm going to wait until something fully knocks it off, But and that might happen next week. We'll see. Yeah, I was going to say, we're going to be saying this is one of the best Dick's Picks, I think, a couple of times, and uh, at least in the episodes I had. <laughs> yeah, 12. In this season, yeah. 12 is, uh, it's June 26th and 28th, 1974, in Providence and in Boston. So it's a compilation. Mm-hmm. And, 
you don't want to talk about this too much, but I think what people love about this show is that there's a lot of unusual moments. There's a lot of jammy tracks on this, like tracks that are literally just called jams on, the, right. on this album. Um, yeah, even just looking at the track list, it jumps out at you for how unusual it is and how it doesn't really have any of the big jam centerpieces that you would expect from the Grateful Dead, but it's... You know, suffice to say, a very highly revered volume of this uh, series, and I'm excited to jump into it yeah, in and, a couple weeks. And you know what else it doesn't have? <laughs> I know, we get a reprieve from <laughs> Tennessee Jed. It's our, our short vacation. Uh, but it'll be back. It'll be back. Right after that. Oh, yeah. You can't, yep. you can't count Jed out long. Jed's, Jed always <laughs> comes back. Um all right, everyone. Thank you for listening to uh, this episode of 36 from the Vault. We will be back in a few weeks with Dick's Picks, Volume 12. Can't wait. Yep. See y'all later. See ya. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman and mastered by Matt Dwyer. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.